the congregation here for the years that the White Oak Church has helped me and my family and the work that I did working in Latin America for several years. It's a great blessing to have your help and your prayers. And I don't know when that actually started. It started when my Uncle Garnet was still living here and working here. And uh, I, I don't know how many years ago that was. And then in 2011, I contacted the elders here and let them know that I would not be working with the foreign mission work. But there was a church about 30 minutes up the road from where we live in Valdosta that was needing help as far as a preacher is concerned. It's the Adel Church of Christ. Adel is 39 miles by the mile markers from the Florida line, so that gives you an idea how far south we are. It's good to, to see my Aunt Marion and have my daughter Amanda and her son John Ware, her husband. You, I'll tell you why I said that in a minute. My son-in-law, I'll get it out right, they live in Sebring, Florida, and we're headed this week, our son, my son's getting married Friday, and my mom had called me this past Friday morning her blood pressure had gotten up to like 122 over 93 and 222. And so she was afraid and wanted me to come up here. And so I called uh, Brother Dearman this afternoon to let him know I was coming. And at 10 to 6, he asked me if I wanted to preach. <laughs> and I know that, you know, they, you get the bulletins and the reports. And I guess they want to know if I can preach too. So it's on the spur of the moment. That's all right. Uh, didn't Paul tell Timothy to be ready in season, out of season? And it must be the season. <laughs> but to tell you a little bit about the church in Adel, it started in the 1950s. It has always been a, uh, I would say, a relatively small congregation. Uh, they have never, to this date, had an eldership for various reasons. And in 2011, March of 2011, they had divided over uh, letting a preacher go. And actually, about two-thirds of the congregation had left and gone to the other side of town, and it left about 16 or 17 in the building that they had met in since the 50s. And uh, without going into the details of all that, uh, they called Forest Park. I was still working with Latin American Missions at the time, and I didn't know what was going on, and I didn't want to go up there until I found out what, found out what happened. But over the course of time, I started going in May of 11 just as a fill-in preacher. And over time, uh, by that fall in September, I decided that I would go and work with them regularly. And through the course of conversations and prayers and Bible studies uh, in November... The Sunday after Thanksgiving of 2011, the, the two that had divided came back together. Um, it was a wonderful day, and that doesn't normally happen. I give God all the glory for any of that that has happened. And since then, there have been some who have uh, moved out. Some have passed away. We've had some baptisms. We've had some that don't stick. We've had some who have stuck. And... For the last couple of years, we've had, like a lot of congregations do, our society is wreaking havoc on our families. 
and we've had some divorces and and it's hurting the families and and so we deal with those situations and since you don't have elders guess who gets to handle the most of it and i involve the men as much as i can in those efforts the men meet we all meet once a month on the second sunday to discuss church business and even though we don't have an eldership I'll have to say that the men in the congregation at Adel are united for the most part. And they have a single mind, and that's to do God's will. And that's a blessing to me to see that happening, especially with the things that have happened in the past. We have some young people there who are coming that are up and promising. Um, Some of them very recent converts. Uh, One young man and his wife have been there. He's been a Christian a little over two years. And another young man that was baptized last fall. I'm working with these men because, you see, I'm getting older. And I'm not going to be here in a few years. And somebody has to carry on the works in the congregations. And one of the young men who's been a Christian a little over two years taught my class couple of weeks ago on Wednesday night in Revelation. Now, he was studying one of the churches, but nonetheless, he taught it. And uh, this coming Wednesday night, he'll do that again. And one of the other young men who wants to be a gospel preacher has done one sermon, and I review his lessons, and he's supposed to preach again Sunday night, the 29th of this month. And there's one sister. uh, We are a racially mixed congregation, uh, South Georgia is is very racially integrated, and and fortunately we don't have a lot of racial issues. I mean, I know we do in a lot of places, but uh, the congregation there loves everybody. We love one another, and there's one of the black sisters who used to drive a school bus, and she got to know a lot of people, and she was she would go and talk to the parents and say, "Let me take your child to church Sunday." And she was doing that in another congregation, and they were kind of uh, unable to take care of these children she was ushering in. So she called us a little over a year ago and wanted to know if if she brought them, would we teach them? I got the teachers together and uh, because somebody said, we need to get the men together. I said, no, we don't. We need to get the teachers together. These ladies are going to take care of these children, and we heard what was... Uh, presented to us and they said we will teach them and we've we've had some success with that and some of this sisters even her own grandchildren great-grandchildren the parents are not faithful but she gets them there some of the other good things that are happening is we go uh, once a year we have what we call a daily festival in about in adel and we've tried to schedule that Uh, our gospel meeting the Sunday after that it'll occur on a Saturday we'll go and set up a a little tent and hand out tracts and DVDs and meet people and then our gospel meeting starts on Sunday Uh, and that's our typical spring meeting then in the fall we will invite men from the area to come and preach we have two meetings a year one thing I like about the men at Adel they want to have gospel meetings and I know some congregations have virtually stopped that but it's good for the members because some of our members haven't been Christians all that. Some of them for less than 10 Most of the men that I'm working with less than 10 years. And so you look at that and you look at some hope and promise. My goal is to teach them. 
so that if it comes to a point when I need to move on, they can take things up and go. And one of the brethren who's, who just celebrated seven years as a Christian, very studious, very willing, uh, preached this morning in my absence. I said, Adam, I'm going to be gone Sunday. Can you preach? And of course, that's like asking a kid if they like cotton candy. He was ready. And I'm always appreciative of that. And uh, the, uh, the congregation needs your prayers. But I want to say for the most part... And I'm not, I'm not biased. I think the church is doing pretty good. Uh, there are things that I'd like to see different, but you take what you have and who you have and you make the best of it and you encourage them, you work with them, and you set the example, you set the tone. I would say the most difficult thing for me in working at ADL is being 30 minutes away. One of the good things that happens at times when people go to the hospital, they usually come to the hospital in Valdosta, which that makes it somewhat convenient, but sometimes they go to Tifton. Well, Tifton is 50 miles from my house, but I go anyway. And so those are kind of some of the updates. The, the average attendance, um, right at 55 of late, which uh, is good, consistent numbers, and I will say that there's some brethren there that you wonder about, but then when they do wrong and they're confronted with it, they'll repent. And that, that makes your job a little easier, doesn't it, elders, when, when people have that disposition. And uh, the, uh, the contribution, we struggle. Uh, it's not a, there's not a high money-making group of people there. Those who are able give much. I think those who are unable give much. They just don't have much to give. And we have actually given under budget the whole time I've been there. Fortunately, there's a little money in a slush fund, but that's slushing down. So pray that we will find ways to, to keep that up. They started paying me a certain salary figure when I came, and I've not taken any more. I'm not asking for any more. That's why... I get help from brethren like you. And if you have any questions about it uh, afterward, I'll answer any question uh, that that you have. We've not had a lot of baptisms this year. We've been dealing a lot with these marital situations, and hopefully we can get that behind us and get on with the main thing. You know how that holds you back sometimes. And when you don't have elders, it makes it a challenge. So pray for me that I'll have wisdom and that, that and pray for us to have opportunities. I'd like to spend a few minutes tonight um, with a lesson. My son taught me this. I bought an iPad uh, last few months ago, and he said, Dad, my sermons are in my iPad. You never know when you're going to get asked to preach. And so here we'll, we'll go through a lesson tonight for a few minutes. And something that I think is a passage that is very precious to me, and it was precious to Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1 at verse 12. There are brethren that you know are convicted by what they say and the way that they say it. You know they're convicted by the way that they live. There's no question in your mind about their conviction to the Lord, their conviction to His Word, their conviction to the truth. 
There comes a point where you know Jesus in a very intimate way. When you're first baptized and you're young, you know who He is. You know He's the Son of God. You know He died for your sins according to the Scriptures. And you know that you need to be baptized in order to contact His blood. But over time, you learn Jesus better, don't you? You learn more about Him. You become more acquainted with Him. You understand what He thought and how He thought and why He did what He did. 2 Timothy, as far as I can understand, is the last letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. He was about to, according to secular tradition, be beheaded in Rome. So he writes this letter to a young preacher. A young preacher who he is very concerned about by the name of Timothy. And he tells Timothy in verse 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 1, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Obviously, Timothy knew that something was going on with Paul, and, and to some degree it's like Paul is wanting at least a little bit of sympathy out of his young trainee, and that's okay. When, when you're struggling, you lean on your brethren, don't you? You share with me, Timothy. But not only that, you need to make sure you're willing to suffer for the gospel too. Because obviously if he was faithful to it, he would indeed suffer, wouldn't he? Paul was. Paul did. But Paul has encouraged Timothy in chapter 4 and verse 9 of this epistle to come to him shortly. Obviously, Paul had finally come to the conclusion that he was close to the end of his life when you read chapter 4 and he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. He knows he's about to die. Timothy, come see me. I want you to come spend some time with me. You know, there are times more important than others when we need each other. Aren't you glad you have brethren you can lean on when you need somebody? And here Paul is in a Roman prison, no doubt cold, dark, damp. Obviously, the food was not the best. Obviously, the company was not the best. Obviously, he didn't sleep well. But he was able, obviously, by some way to be able to write this letter. And he wants Timothy to come to, come to him. But what is the purpose of this little letter that Paul writes to Timothy? Yes, Paul talks about himself, but he's writing this to strengthen this young preacher. When you work with young preachers, strengthen them. Teachers, Bible teachers, anybody, strengthen them, encourage them. Because they're going to face things, and they're going to face them alone sometimes. And they're going to have to stand there toe-to-toe with somebody or something, so they need encouragement. And remember also, as Paul would tell Timothy... I would tell the brethren rather at Corinth that Timothy, it's important that you be strong. Is it possible that he's implying that Timothy might falter? Well, he could because he says, Timothy, don't you be ashamed. Don't you be ashamed of the testimony. Could there come a point where he would be ashamed of the gospel? Could there come a point in suffering that Timothy might back down? Don't you do it, Timothy. Because I want you to share with me in the sufferings because the gospel indeed is worth suffering over. 
And it's also a reminder that you can fall. You remember what Peter did when Jesus was on trial three times. I don't know him. Just prior to that, what had he done? According to John's Gospel, he took his sword and cut off the ear of Malchus. He was awfully brave then. But when Jesus really got on trial, Peter faltered, didn't he? Obviously, Paul knew that Timothy could falter. Don't you do it, Timothy. Don't falter. As we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Timothy, you've got to be strong. Timothy, don't be ashamed uh, of the testimony or of the gospel. Then Paul talks about who he is, and I'm paring this lesson down as much as I can since our time is limited. But think about what Paul says. Let's look in beginning with the verse 9, speaking of God. He said, who saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. Note this, before times began, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished life, who has abolished death, and brought to life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now watch what Paul says. To which I was appointed raises the question, why did Paul tell Timothy he was appointed to these things? Well, it's obviously he knows he's about to leave this world. He won't be preaching anymore. Timothy's going to have to take the torch, as it were, because he too has been appointed to preach, at least by the command of God for one who's able to do so. But Paul points out who he is. He says, I was appointed a preacher. We know, according to Acts 9, in verses 22 and verse chapter 26, 9, 22 and 22, 9, 22 and 26 of Acts, we have the conversion accounts of Paul that Jesus handpicked that man to go and preach, didn't he? He handpicked him. And Paul took that as a very serious charge. He said, I was appointed a preacher. The word preacher means one who is a herald who would speak out for and on behalf of another, to speak for that person. And also he says, I am an apostle. Timothy wasn't an apostle, but Paul was. An apostle was one who was sent. You'll recall that Jesus had Ananias to tell Paul, I'm sending him, I'm sending you to go out and preach to the Gentiles. And also, in a limited way, even to the Jewish people. Finally, he says, not only that, I'm a, I'm a teacher If we as preachers don't herald, and in a generic sense, if we don't take our job seriously as one cent, and if we don't teach, we're failures, aren't we? We have to be ready to teach. Isn't Christianity a taught religion? One of the reasons we have trouble talking to some of our neighbors, they don't understand that. It's a taught religion. Didn't Jesus say, go in all the world and preach the gospel? Mark 16 and verse 15, Matthew 28, verse 19, go teach all nations, make disciples of all nations, teaching them, the last part of verse 20 would say. Paul was a teacher, but I want to think for a moment too, in this particular book, Paul was also a a sufferer. We kind of like the first three, but we don't like that fourth one. We don't like the idea of suffering because that steps 
that gets us uncomfortable. That takes us out of our comfort zone, doesn't it? He says, verse 12, For this reason I also suffer. For what reason? Because I preach, because I'm an apostle, and because I teach. I have done these things. Timothy, I want you to make sure that you're willing to share in the sufferings. Let me ask you, church at White Oak, is the gospel worth suffering over? Is it that valuable? Is it that precious? Is it that powerful? Is it that needed? Absolutely it is. Because if people don't hear it and they don't understand it and they don't believe it and they don't obey it, they can't go to heaven. Paul understood that that was important to him. But then we come to verse 12. The next part of it says, Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Paul had no shame in what he had done or where he was at that time. He says, For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep or guard that which I have committed to him until that day. Think for me, with me for a few minutes about what Paul is saying here in the time that's allotted to us. Number one, Paul says, in the American Standard Version of 19.1, the phrasing is, I know him. We know that Paul was talking about Jesus. I know him. I know him whom I have believed. There comes a point where you know Jesus in a very special way, there are basically two Greek words for, for the word know. One of them is gnosko, which is just the knowledge of facts. I dare say when we're teaching the 6th and 8th graders and sometimes even the 12th graders, and somebody who's a nom- just recently become a Christian, they're, they're assimilating facts. But there comes a point where you know Him. You know the Lord. You know why he did what he did. You understand his thinking. You understand his approach, his purpose. And why it is that Jesus in three or three and a half years fully committed himself to do nothing but serve his father. Paul learned that too. He came to understand it and he not only learned it, he lived it. The word know here in the Greek is the word oida. It means a full knowledge. And it's also in the present tense form, which indicates actions in the past that are still having abiding effects. One of the reasons that some people aren't faithful is they don't understand what we're saying right here. It's one thing to know the facts. You can memorize the plan of salvation. You can talk about the facts about the church and who the head of the church is, But until that becomes a vital part of who you are, you don't really know it, do you? When you think about Jesus being the head of the church, or as he would say in Luke 6.46, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Somebody who knows Jesus like Paul did, they don't have any trouble calling Jesus Lord and doing what he says. They know that means an ownership and a full submission to him as King of kings and And Lord of lords, Paul came to understand it. It's a full and complete knowledge that he uses in this passage. And it also carries with it a connotation of having a very close relationship with someone. Haven't you found over the years, the more you know about Jesus, 
and the more you seek to imitate Him, and the more you see how He He works in your life through the teaching of God's Word, don't you feel closer to Him? And if you don't feel that, then there's something not connecting somewhere. Right? If you're not feeling this closeness, when we sing these songs, have you seen Jesus my Lord? And, and you think about it, Paul knew Him. Now Jesus uses the same word in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 12 when you talk about relationship with someone. He says, truly I say to you, talking to certain people, I do not know you. And the idea is He never has known them. That day, I believe, that Paul is talking about is the day of judgment. Jesus is talking about the day of judgment. There will come a time when people will stand before God who have lived since the dawn of time. And when this world is over, they will have lived up until the time that Jesus comes. And we know that Jesus is very clear in Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven... But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's the difference in somebody who says, Lord, Lord, and somebody who does the will? Well, one may know him by name, but the other one knows him in their heart. They love him dearly. They would die for him, and Paul would too. And Jesus is going to stand on that day, and he's going to say, I, I don't know you. It's the same idea. When I think about that, it almost gives me chills. I hope that I know Jesus the way He wants me to. Because it's the most serious relationship in all the world, isn't it? When you think about being married to your wife or your husband, it's precious, it's valuable. But it doesn't compare to belonging to Jesus, does it? It's a different relationship. Now, I think of Paul saying... Not only that, I know whom I have believed. Paul believed Jesus. And there was no question in his mind that, but that he believed the Lord. I was brought up in the Lord's church. And I'm so thankful for that. There came a point, and there comes a point, even if you're brought up among God's people, you're not really brought up in the church, but you're brought up in, around God's people. You become a member of the church when you obey the gospel, but you're around the church people and God's people, and, and there comes a point where it doesn't matter what my daddy believes. It really doesn't matter what my mother believes. It doesn't matter that I've dug up a little history and found out some people on my grandmother Leonard's side were members of the church and some of them were preachers. That's not really what matters. What matters is, Roger, has this become your faith? Has this become your relationship? And that's what Paul had. He says, I believe, and he says, I am persuaded. One of the things that makes evangelism a powerful tool is when people are persuaded. They come to a full conviction. And they say, oh, I've been looking for this for so long. This is exactly what I've been looking for. And they read it and they understand it and the tears run down their face. This is what I want. They're believing it, aren't they? They're persuaded. They're convinced. 
And when they say, I'm going to become a Christian, I'm going to confess Jesus' name, I'm going to be baptized, they are converted. They're convicted and they're converted. But Paul says, I am persuaded. Isn't Christianity a religion of persuasion? I'm going to be kind about this, but I don't like, as Bob Bryson would say, jello sermons. I need something with some meat in it. Something that will persuade me. What was it that persuaded the Apostle Paul to, to follow the Lord? He says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 11, Knowing therefore the fear or the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What's he talking about in verse 10? The judgment. We'll all give an account of ourselves. Knowing therefore the fear or the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Several years ago in the 1700s, a man by the name of Lord Lyttelton and another man by the name of Gilbert West had agreed to do some research to try and disprove and overthrow Christianity. And um, Lord Lyttelton had said, I'm going to prove that Paul's conversion was just for base motives that he really didn't have true, genuine motives, and, and Mr. West was going to try and disprove the resurrection. Well, ultimately, after Mr. Lyttelton did considerable amount of study, he came to the conclusion that Paul's conversion was real. This man really believed what he was doing. He was fully convinced that, that he was doing the thing that God wanted him to do. How was Paul persuaded? Notice with me Acts chapter 9 and verse 22 where Luke gave the record it says, But Paul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews that dwelt at Damascus proving that this is the Christ. We know from our studies it was highly critical for Paul to prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, wasn't it? That some of them, they didn't, most of them didn't believe that. And through this teaching, he was proving it. The Greek word for proving there means to bring together. What would he do with the Jews? Well, he'd take the Old Testament and he would bring those prophecies forward. Then he would lay those things down beside what they was factual about Jesus. And he would pull that together and prove that he was the Christ. And you know if you studied it that, 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 it can't, that you cannot defeat the argument that Jesus was indeed who he was supposed to be. It's inarguable and Paul would do that. So he brought together those things. But not only that, Paul saw Jesus. Now we know that according to the, the, the records in the gospel accounts that the other apostles, with the exception of Judas, the other eleven, they saw the resurrected Lord. Paul was not an apostle yet, as you know. But you read Acts 9, you read Acts 22, you read Acts 26, especially Acts 9, Paul saw Jesus. Have you ever wondered why Jesus made himself known that way? Think about it. If Paul is going to go out and preach to Jews and the Gentiles, he needed proof 
that Jesus was the Christ. He would do it with the Jews of the Old Testament and lay it down beside the things that were known about Jesus. And he could also say with confidence, and in fact, I have seen him. Well, it was essential that an apostle, at least according to the original apostles, that they were with Jesus from the time of John until he was resurrected. And of course, the Lord revealed that information to Paul But he also revealed himself. Paul was convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. But when he he held the clothes of the men that killed Stephen, he wasn't convinced at that point, but the Lord said, I'm going to show you. And indeed, he did. He did. He says, now, I'm not only persuaded, but... He is able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. There are two ways that you could look at what Paul may be saying here. The English Standard Version says in the last part of 2 Timothy 1 verse 12 that that which he has committed to me. The Greek word there literally means to to keep my deposit. So it could be that which... Paul had committed to the Lord, or it could be what the Lord had committed to Paul. It's kind of hard to be 100% sure. I'm going to give you an educated take on it. Go back and think about what Paul told Timothy in verse 8. Do not be ashamed of what? The testimony, the message that you're preaching. Not only that, Think about the gospel and its power in verse 10. He says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And so I look at that and I think, well, if it means that which I've committed to him, that'll preach. If it means that which he's committed to me, both of those will preach. But the thing I'm looking at is Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 and 21, Oh, Timothy... Guard what was committed to your trust. Avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it some have strayed concerning the faith. Now if Paul is talking about the gospel, we know Paul is saying, I will preach it, I will be committed to it until that day. If he means his own death, some may believe that that's his his death. It could be that or the judgment. Nonetheless, he he was committed to it. If it meant that which the Lord committed to him or that which he committed to the Lord, either way will stand. And I look at this man and I think, thank you, Lord, for calling such a man that lived as he did and can give you and me some encouragement tonight. Because we will suffer if we're Christians. Paul did. He told Timothy not to be ashamed of that. And he says, I'm not ashamed. And the reason that he wasn't is because he says, I know him. Let me ask you something. Do you know Jesus intimately? I mean, do you feel that He is your 
your Savior and your, your brother and the Son of God and that you're in fellowship with Him and that your relationship with Him is the most important relationship on this earth. Because when Paul died, wasn't that really all that mattered for him? That he had that relationship with the Lord Himself? But he says, I'm not talking about facts here. Anybody can know the facts. I'm talking about knowing Him. We should never be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. We should never be ashamed of of others who stand for it. Sometimes preachers will be spoken against and ripped apart for standing up for the truth. When they stand up for the truth, we ought to stand there and put our hands on their shoulders. Stand with them. Stand firm. And that's what Paul obviously needed Timothy to come and encourage him. But also, until the end of your life. They asked me at 10 till to speak. I hope what we've said has been helpful and encouraging. But I wonder... If if it ten minutes till six, I was somewhere, and somebody had grabbed me by the arm and said, "Mr. Leonard, if you don't renounce your Lord, we're going to take off your head." Rather than stand up here and preach, you see, if we're going to stand up here and preach it, brother Dearman, we've got to mean it. We've got to believe it. I know what I should do if I were to be faced with that. The question is, what would I do? We sing the song sometimes, what will you do with Jesus? And come down to it, aren't you thankful that when Jesus looked at Peter after he made that third confession, right in the middle of it, that old rooster crows and Peter went out and what? He wept bitterly. When we realize that we've sinned, we must be willing to weep bitterly. To weep over that. And I love the fact that God says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, He will forgive us. And Peter was, Peter was penitent and the Lord put him to work like Paul. Is there something that's been said tonight that's caused you to look at your soul, your relationship with Jesus? Maybe you're not a child of God. You've never come before an audience such as this and confessed the fact that you're lost, that you're outside of Christ. Jesus said in Luke 13 and verse 3, unless you repent, you will all in like manner perish. He repeats that in verse 5, but... In 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants the best for you. He wants you to go to heaven. He wants you to confess His name. As Jesus said in Matthew 9, verses 34 and 35, you confess My name before men. I'll confess you before My Father who is in heaven. If you deny Me before men, I'll deny you before My Father who is in heaven. And then when Peter stands up on that great day of Pentecost and the brethren have been convinced through the powerful preaching of Peter, you've killed the Son of God. Of course, God had brought him back to life, but they were cut to the heart. Men and brethren, verse 37, Acts chapter 2, what shall we do? 
And Peter said, and this is what every gospel preacher ought to say when somebody says, what do I do? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter gave the answer. Do you need to respond to the invitation tonight? Jesus is waiting and we're just His hands and feet and eyes and ears if there's some way we can help you as we stand and sing.